Well, good evening to you all. I think I'm the stand-in tonight. I think uh, Dad was actually meant to be uh, preaching, but he's in Beijing. <laughs> so uh, you've got me. Before we turn ba- uh, back to Hebrews, let us, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is a living word and it is a powerful word. And Heavenly Father, we ask that you would speak through your word and by your spirit to each heart and to each head in this room this evening. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'd encourage us and challenge us and change us and conform us into the image of your son heavenly father we thank you that we have your word and we ask that you would speak to us for we pray in jesus name amen 72 year old frenchman jean nouvelle is a world famous and award-winning architect he's designed some of the world's most famous buildings office blocks apartments courthouses, town halls, and many other celebrated buildings. However, one of his most famous buildings was completed just four years ago in 2014 and is found in Sydney, Australia at number one Central Park. The building is famous for one main reason. It's designed to have no shadows. Nouvelle used every trick of his trade. He used reflective glass. He used sun-tracking mirrors. He used clever lighting throughout the building to ensure that no one would be able to see any shadows in his building. He wanted people in the building to always be in the light. You see, some people like Nouvelle want to remove the shadows. But then there's others like the relatively unknown American Cameron Douglas, son of Hollywood star Michael Douglas, grandson of movie legend Kirk Douglas, who struggled to live in the shadows of their more famous and more celebrated father and grandfather. Cameron Douglas, I think he was a bit of a tearaway. He got involved in various things through his young teenage years and ended up in court. He ended up um, being arrested for drug dealing and he was brought before the judge. And the judge acknowledged in his case just how difficult it must have been for young Cameron Douglas to live in the shadows of his father and grandfather. Tonight as we come to this passage of Hebrews, Hebrews 10, 19 to 39, we'll see that the writer of the letter is encouraging Christian believers who have come out of a Jewish background, perhaps in Jerusalem, perhaps in Rome, perhaps somewhere else, to remove the shadows and to live in the light. He encouraged them not to live in the shadows, the shadows of the Old Testament, the ceremonies, the rites, the symbols, the rituals, the sacrificial system. Stop living in the Old Testament shadows, which pointed forward to Christ. Stop living in the old way. Live in the new way. Live in the light of Jesus Christ. Live with the certain hope of sins forgiven. 
the hope of heaven and peace with God. How? By faith. And so as we go through these verses, we'll see um, three things. First of all, from 19 to 25, we'll see a word of encouragement. Then from 26 to 31, we'll have a word of warning. And at the end, from 32 to 39, we'll have a word of reminder. So first of all, we have a word of encouragement. Draw near to God. Verse 19 to 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. I remind you that it's around AD 65. It's around 30 years or so since the Lord Jesus Christ had died, had been raised to life and had ascended into heaven. And since the Holy Spirit had come on the day of Pentecost, some people reading or listening to this letter, letter being read aloud will remember those days clearly. They'll have been there. They'll have seen the events. Others will be sons or daughters of those who were there. Jewish men and women and young people who have now come to a living, saving faith in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. However, the days for these Jewish Christians are difficult. It's tough. Their faith has been under attack. Persecution for Christians is on the rise. Nero, that brute, that monster, the Roman emperor, he's on the prowl seeking to imprison, seeking to destroy, seeking to kill Christians. We know what he was like. And so these Jewish Christians, they're struggling to grow. They are struggling to apply God's word to their lives. They're struggling to live in the light of the truth of the gospel. And they're in danger of going back to the old way, going back to their old Jewish roots. They're in danger of returning to the Old Testament shadows and life without Christ. And so they need encouragement to fan up the flame, to strengthen their faith. And so the context of this first half of chapter 10 is all about showing to the Hebrews that the Old Testament shadows are so much poorer than the real thing, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. They're so much poorer. Just imagine, imagine it's, it's a, a beautiful day like this and a dad and his son, they go down to, I don't know, go down into Prince's Park for, for the day, for the afternoon and they're happily playing in, out in the sun and it's all fine and the little boy's running off and just happy with life. And then as the day grows uh, a little bit longer, the sun gets a little bit lower in the sky and the sun shines down and as the sun shines down and strikes the trees and the things in Prince's Park, it casts a shadow over the ground. 
And then there's the, the little boy's playing a little bit more, perhaps because he's got a bit tired, I don't know, perhaps he's fallen off one of the climbing frames or, or, or whatever, balls hit him or something. He starts to cry and he ru runs round, Where, where's my dad? And he's, he's looking round and then he spots his dad and he starts to run over towards his dad. But remember those shadows which are lying long on the ground. Does the little boy run over for, for some support or some f encouragement and some care from the shadow on the ground? Does he run over and throw his arms around the ground, around the shadow on the floor? No. Because his father is there in front of him and he throws his arms around his father. His father is there. So why would he throw his arms around the shadow on the floor? But this is the opposite of what these struggling believers are doing. And so the writer says, the Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices, they can't make us eternally right with God. They can't make us perfect. No, the sacrifices, they're shadows. Yes, they point forward to Christ. But they have to be repeated time and time and time again because we sin time and time and time again. The shadow and symbol of a, blood, of, a, of a bull's blood, that can't save us, but the blood of Christ can save us. So come to Christ. Christ is here. Christ has come. Come to Christ. The new way in, in the Lord Jesus Christ is so much better. There's a new and living way. And so the writer says, Christ came. How did he come? He came, verse 7 of chapter 10. He came obediently. He came humbly. He came to do the Father's will, verse 9. He came to be a sin offering once for all, verse 10. He came to shed his own blood. He came to fulfill the law of God. He sanctifies us. He conforms us into the image of his Son. In that process, verse 14, he came as the great high priest not needing to perform an annual sacrifice. He came and gave himself as an eternal sacrifice, never to be repeated. And he came to provide eternal forgiveness for sins for all who will believe and for all who will come in repentance and faith. And so therefore, verse 19, brothers, because of all of that, because of what's gone before, because of Jesus and what Jesus has done, we can now come to God. We can come boldly. We can come with confidence and with certainty. But come to the Father. Come to the Lord. Enter the holy places. How? Through the Lord Jesus Christ, not through the shadows. So then how do we come? Verse 20, there's a new and living way. Jesus has opened the way. Jesus has now given us access to the Father. Hallelujah. The curtain has been torn down. The way is now clear for us to enter. The death of Jesus as the perfect sacrifice and his office of great high priest means that we can have access directly to the Father. Verse 21. So then how should we come? Verse 22. We should draw near. We should draw near without fear and we should draw near by faith and we should draw near to God daily and we should draw near to God without hesitating, with intimacy, with humility, remembering who this God we serve and worship truly is. 
He's a holy God. And we should remember into whose presence we're coming. We should draw near to praise him. We should draw near to worship him. We should draw near to pour out our hearts to him. We should draw near to thank him and to praise him. And we should draw near with our hearts cleansed because he wants us to come. The living God wants you and I, rebel sinners, weak, failing, rebel sinners. He wants us to come because we're forgiven sinners. We're redeemed sinners and he wants us to come into his glorious presence. Isn't that staggering? And so we should come without doubts and without wavering. Verse 23. Not like, you know, the little ships, the little boats out on the sea, bobbing up and down and every blow of the wind and every wave is going to toss it to and fro. But like the, the ship with its anchor dropped secured to the seabed and no blow of the wind and no wave is going to do anything to this ship because it's steadfast it's unmoved and we should come with our faith anchored and rooted in Christ and in the promises of his word we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll fastened to the rock which cannot move grounded firm and deep in the Saviour's love. And what's more, as we come to God, verse 24, we should encourage one another. We should stir one another up. We should help one another. We should care for one another. We should pray for one another. We should pray with one another. We should love one another and be hospitable to one another. We should open up our homes to one another. We should talk to one another about the glorious God that we serve, about the wonderful Saviour who has saved us from a certain eternity without him. We should care for one another and listen to one another and not do what some of those do. Verse 25, they stop meeting together. We should go to church regularly. We should feed on Christ regularly. We should talk of Christ always. You all know as much as me that sometimes... We just don't feel like going to church. You wake up on a Sunday morning or get to five o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. You, I'm struggling here. I don't want to go today. Our hearts are cold. Our hearts are dull. Our hearts are weary for whatever reason. Maybe we're struggling with the preacher. Maybe we're struggling with someone else in the congregation. Maybe there's other issues in our home life or in our work life and we're just struggling and we're tired and we're weary. And yet strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. And strength comes as we meet with the Lord and as we meet with his people. So listen, let me remind you, however you feel this evening, you're singing and you're praying and you're welcome and you're greeting and you're interested in one another and you're serving and your presence here in church this evening might just be the encouragement that someone else needs to help strengthen them in their faith this evening. And what's more, whose responsibility is it to make sure that you do not forsake the assembling together? It's not the pastor's responsibility. It's not the elder's responsibility. It's not the deacon's responsibility. It's not your husband's or your wife's responsibility. It's your own responsibility. It's everyone's responsibility, no exceptions. And that means you and that means me. But we should, verse 25, all of us, exhort and encourage 
one another to meet together. Secondly, we have a word of warning, verse 26. There is a judgment. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So the writer to the Hebrews now changes tack with his readers. And for the fourth time in 10 chapters, he gives them a serious warning. The first warning was given in chapter 2. And it's a warning about drifting from the word. The second warning is in chapter three. And it's about doubting the word, hardening your hearts. The third warning is in chapter five and chapter six about becoming dull towards the word. And then here's the fourth warning in chapter 10. And it follows this downward spiral. It starts with drifting. And then it comes to doubting and then we're indifferent and dull towards God's word and then it ends up here in chapter 10 despising God's word and that's shown by the way in which these uh, Hebrews go on deliberately sinning there in verse 26 and deliberately and willfully ignoring God's word and that's unbelievable why because they know the truth of the gospel just like you and just like me. They understand the truth of the gospel just like you and I. And they had claimed at one point to love this gospel truth. And yet look at them now. Turning their backs on this wonderful truth, verse 26. Treating this truth as if it were a lie. Trampling underfoot the things that they had once held so dear to themselves. Rejecting and spurning the son of God, making a mockery of his shed blood and showing utter contempt for the work of the Holy Spirit. Can you believe it? I wonder if you know anyone like that. Perhaps someone who once worshipped here with you, Belvedere, someone who once served, someone who once ministered, someone who once sat in the congregation and yet now seemingly nowhere. Ademus, who's deserted and gone to Thessalonica because they've loved this present world. Throughout my 40 years and 20 years or so of doing youth work and working with the teenagers here first and then down a bridge, I've come into contact with Literally hundreds of young people, many who were baptized, many who came on church camps, came to holiday Bible clubs and all those different things. And yet now, seemingly nowhere. I'm sure you can think of people as well. How sad and how fearful it is. Why? 
Because just look at the warnings, which are so clear and so severe. This is not make-believe. This is not pretend. This is not, you know, the sort of stuff which, which, you know, we can take or leave. It doesn't really matter. You see, for those who deliberately turn their back on the Lord in apostasy, there is a terrifying judgment, a fearful judgment, and there's a crystal clear warning here in these verses, and this is what the writer warns. I mean, there's many things. I'm just going to give you five of the warnings that the writer gives us. Number one, there'll be no forgiveness or sacrifice for their sins, verse 26. Number two, you will be treated as an enemy of God and his adversary. How fearful is that to be an enemy of the living God? Verse 27. Number three, you will be consumed in judgment, verse 27. Number four, you will receive the severest of punishments, verse 29. And fifthly, you will be left in the hands of a God who hates sin. A God who is of pure eyes than to behold iniquity, who cannot look upon sin. He cannot. And he will have his vengeance, verse 30 and 31. Wow. Be warned. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So let he or she who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church and heed the warning from his word. And thirdly, in closing, we have a word of reminder, verse 32. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore... Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls so the writer closes this chapter on a much more positive note and he encourages his readers to respond to the challenge that he's laid down respond to the challenge I'd probably be embarrassed now because he's sat there but a few weeks ago I was watching Isaac's uh, end of season cup final over uh, up in Walton and he was winning 2-0 at half time so they played quite well but anyway I just so happened to be on the sideline right by where the opposition manager brought his little group of lads and he sat them down on the floor and he gave them a right talking to at half time and he certainly laid down a challenge to them he said you're lazy you're sloppy you make a mistake after mistake after mistake you're not working hard enough you're not doing this, you're not doing that, you're not doing what I told you to do before the start of the game. And he laid down a challenge to his players. Don't you dare go out in that second half and put in another performance like you've just put in. Remember back just a few weeks when you played the same team and you beat them, whatever it was, three or four or five nil. Remember how you played then. Remember what you did. 
Listen to me. Listen to me. Take on board the challenge. Remember what you're good at. Remember what you did before. And here there's a challenge to respond. And it's given by a word of reminder. Listen. You're struggling, yes. You're downcast, yes. You're fearful. You're wandering believers. But think back. Think back to those days after your conversion, verse 32. Think back to those days of spiritual vitality, those days of zeal, those days of passion for the things of God when you loved more than anything to hear the scriptures. You love to hear preaching. You love to be with God's people. You love to be meeting together. You love to be talking about the things of God. It's almost like the old married couple looking out at there's one or two old married couples in the room, aren't there, this evening? Can you think back to those days, I don't know, a few years ago, when, you know, you were courting and you made an effort for one another and you'd get uh, yourselves dressed up and you'd put your aftershave on and your perfume on and you'd make sure your best clothes were on and you'd think about what you were going to say to one another and you'd speak to one another generously and, and gently and tenderly and lovingly. And you'd, you know, you'd be excited about the prospect of being together. And there was passion and there was zeal and there was enjoyment. In the same way, think back. Think back to those early days of your Christian experience, the writer says. The truth that changed you. When your eyes were opened, I can remember, I remember as I was driving up here to, tonight, and I, I can remember the, the first Sunday after I was converted up at the, uh, the church at the top of the road. And before that, I'd had no interest really in listening to the things of God. But after I'd been converted that first Sunday when I walked through the doors and I ended up sitting about the third row just behind Mr. Gillies at the front, and I was riveted by what the preacher had to say. The truth changed me. My eyes were opened. And this is what the writer's saying. Although it was hard, although it was difficult, you knew that it was all worth it. You knew that the sufferings of this present life are not worthy to be compared with the glories that await us. And yes, you suffered. Sometimes you suffered publicly. Sometimes you suffered physically. Verse 33, sometimes, yes, you were abused. Sometimes you were shamed. Sometimes you stood side by side with those who were suffering physically, who were being shamed. Sometimes you showed compassion on those who were in prison. Verse 34, you cared for them, and that's a good thing. And because of that, and because you were identified with those people, other people came along and stole your possessions. And yet somehow, you accepted all of this joyfully because of your deep love for the things of God and for the Lord Jesus Christ and because you knew that your treasure is in heaven, verse 34. So how on earth did you manage to do that? How on earth did you manage to press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus? Well, you kept heaven in your sights and you kept heaven in your heart and you kept heaven in your thoughts. So therefore, brothers and sisters, says the writer, remember... Remember and then carry on and press on and endure my beloved, he says. Yes, it's tough. 
Yes, it's difficult at times, but persevere, my Christian friend. How? By faith. And you shall live. Hold on. Just a little bit longer. Cling to his word. Draw near to God. Encourage one another. Don't quit the race. Because home and heaven is in view. And verse 37, for he is coming soon. Hallelujah. Do you know the story of Major General Sir Henry Havelock and the Indian Mutiny of 1857? With the garrison of Lucknow completely surrounded, the situation was helpless and hopeless. And then there's the faintest sound of bagpipes playing, which told a story. A story which said that help is on its way. General Havelock is coming with his Scottish regiments. And all we need to do is hold on. All we need to do is cling on just a little bit longer because our general is coming. So this evening, you may not be on the verge of going back to days of Judaism and the ceremonies and symbols of all of that. But perhaps you may be on the verge of going back to your old ways, discouraged, disillusioned, dulled in spiritual things. Listen again to God's word. Hold on. Cling to his word. Fan into flame that old spiritual zeal and encourage one another and pray for one another and day by day seek to walk by faith and not by sight because heaven is in view and our Lord and Saviour He is coming soon.